Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this conversation between Chelsea Wadigo and Jackie Huggins. I'm Larissa Berendt. And of course, we would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners of this land, and our respect uh, goes to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm a Yualarai Gamilaroi woman, but I have spent most of my life living and working on this country, and to me it's a very special acknowledgement of the generosity with which they share this country with us, and I'm particularly indebted to the women of this community for their guidance in developing my thinking and my values, which seems like a very good um, acknowledgement to be making at this particular panel. But just as we do that, as, since this is a very important part of our cultural ceremony, I just want to first ask Arnie Jackie and then I'll ask Chelsea if they want to join in the acknowledgement. Yes, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the uh, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and uh, always to thank them and focus us and um, uh, be very safe on their land. So thank you. Yeah, as a visitor of this place, um, I'm very grateful to, to be here um, and also I just want to acknowledge the mob that are here this morning that have turned up for this yarn. Um, yeah, it's very special. Thank you. Now, my one bit of housekeeping is to just ask you to turn your phone to silent and dim your screens. If you don't dim them, we can kind of see, and it's really distracting for the people on stage, so I'm sure you don't want to do that. But if you do dim it and you are inclined to tweet about how fantastic Jackie and Chelsea are, do so with hashtag Sydney Writers Festival. Um, I love the festival, and I love it most not as a writer who can talk about my books, but as a reader. And I have to say, this is a very, very special panel for me. Um, Jackie Huggins and Chelsea um, have both been very influential in my own thinking, and I feel like a bit of a fangirl being here with them um, in the best possible way. So um, what I want to say about Jackie is that she is, of course, a Bidjara and Biri Gubba Juru woman from Queensland. Her work on Indigenous affairs spans four decades. She's a trained historian and currently working on the treaty process in Queensland. Her book, uh, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titaism, Identity and Reconciliation, was first published in 1998 and has just been re-released to show what a phenomenally important book it was of its time. And her Jack of Hearts, uh, QX11594, has also just been released. She's going to be talking about both of those books with us. Um, I also just want to acknowledge that Jackie's been quite a trailblazer. I mentioned she was an historian and... Um, for people of my generation, she paved the way in terms of um, not just going into the academy, but in terms of thinking differently. And certainly a lot of her work has very much influenced mine. Um, and then I feel like after I went into the academy following in Arnie Jackie's footsteps, um, I see uh, another generation coming through. And for me, Chelsea has really embodied that. Um, 
I've learnt from both of these women in profound ways um, and I'm really excited about what Chelsea is offering us in terms of new com conversations. She's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman and a Professor of Indigenous Health Humanities at QUT, a discipline that she has pioneered. She's also worked for over two decades in Indigenous health. Another Day in the Colony, I think, is one of the most important First Nations books. It's an absolute must-read. A mix of personal experience and critique. Um, it's a memoir that embraces personal sovereignty. I see both Jackie and Chelsea um, as powerful, sovereign First Nations women who've been instrumental in shaping our thinking on critical issues. And so it's an absolute privilege to be chairing this session. So I thought that I would start by asking each of you why you published your books. Um, and I'll start with you, Jackie, and particularly, I mean, we're talking about two books, but I guess it's certainly about Sister Girl um, and why you've republished that. And I'm particularly interested in what were the conversations that you wanted to start or provoke when you decided to, um, to put these ideas together? Mm. Thanks uh, very much, Larissa, for your, for your words. Um, I uh, published Sister Girl, uh, well, UQP was very brave to publish it back in those days and uh, have since republished with uh, about uh, a third of the essays. Um, that, that's new material and the, uh, the, the style of thinking, and of course, it's about 40 years of my, of my work in terms of uh, reconciliation um, and uh, 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 reconciliation, but um, mostly around the political stuff. I've done National Congress of Australia's First Peoples as well and other things. So uh, I thought that was really important to bring that uh, into the fore, because, um, uh, you know, when I, when I published Sister Girl 1998, uh, I don't believe it even got through the first print run. Uh, Sister Girl, this one, in the first two weeks, um, it, uh, it's, it, it, it got another edition coming up, so they've reprinted it. So that was kind of nice for me to see that. But what does that say? What does that say? It says that nobody, well, some of you, I know you've got books with me and the black hair that I had in those days. Um, some of you um, were ready to receive it when in 24 years ago, even really, I would say 10 years ago, Larissa, they weren't ready to receive our books. But something has changed. Something significantly have changed. So um, that's a really fantastic thing, I think. Um, so some, something's happening out there. And, uh, you know, we're getting uh, education and schools and, and so forth. Um, there's languages, there's, you know, change of uh, place names, uh, change of um, street signs and so forth. So, you know, something's happening around that area. Um, but uh, it was, I must say, it was a tweet from Chelsea that um, encouraged me to do that. And um, she said that um, she could only find two books and borrowed from the library or something on the shelves. And when was I releasing the next Sister Girl? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, I rang UQP up. 
<laughs> and I said to them, would you be interested? Oh, yes, bring it to us. So, uh, so that was really nice. So thank you very much, Chels, and wanting those younger new generation writers to, um, uh, to actually pick, it, pick up the, the book and read that stuff because a lot of it has not changed at all. Um, some of it has, of course, you know, the education that we've seen in our country. But there was no things like climate change or, or um, suicides uh, back then that were notable to write about anyway. Now, I mean, it's deaths in custody, all that stuff, but it, that's, um, that's continuing. Hmm. Did you want to just say a little bit about the book about your dad? Yeah, sure. Well, this one is, as I said, it's a crazy person who does two books in a year. <laughs> Uh, but they were released in February, and this one was in April. We definitely wanted to get it out to um, for Anzac Day. This is a book I wrote with my sister, Nairi Jaro. Um, evidence of the um, of the education that we receive now is that um, my nephew, my nephew's son, as we call him, uh, Nathan Jaro, is our first Indigenous judge of Queensland. Mm -hmm. So that is where the education yeah. comes through. Yeah, so that's changed. <clears throat> and, um, yes, so he was a POW on the, the Thai Burma Railway, Burma Railway, Death Railway, had many names. And uh, we decided that it needed to come out now. So, so there it is, Jack of Hearts, QX11594. That's his, um, <coughs> excuse me, that's his uh, serial number uh, in the army. Thanks. Now, Chelsea, I want to maybe split the question in two for you because, um, as you know, um, there's a little blurb on the front cover of your book by me that says, confronting, generous, moving and insightful. But I, I know I've shared this story with you before. Um, in fact, at the time when I first uh, got the proofs of the book to read it, I got about a third of the way through and I just had the most cathartic cry. I felt like you were articulating things that I'd felt that even as a writer and an academic and a person who works with words, I'd not been able to articulate. I'm still getting teary thinking about it. It was very powerful. And I had asked the question about what conversations you, you wanted to um, start, or as you say, what fights you wanted to provoke. And I guess the first part of the question, I'd love to hear what you were hoping your First Nations audience would take away from it yeah. and then maybe then separately what you hoped a broader audience might take away from it. Yeah, thank you. Um, we need tissues up here also. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I... Um, where do I start? Um, I mean, it was written for a black audience. Um, selfishly, it was written at a time where I had to take time out and it was actually for myself to process a whole lot of stuff. And, um, you know, I had to take sick leave to write a book. Um, and um, so it was me processing stuff. I mean, part of it was about um, just claiming my story back. You know, me and my sisters always joke about writing a book and who's going in that chapter and who's going in that chapter, mm -hmm. just like to call people out. Um, so we all have that imaginary book in our mind of who we're dragging in each chapter. Um, mm. So that was quite therapeutic also. Um, but also it was... Um, it, the book is very much me in conversation with Dad in a dark point of my life and processing what we were taught in a black home about how to navigate the social world um, and what I've learnt then as a parent 
raising five black kids. And some of the stuff, I, some of the things that Dad taught us, I um, take. And there are some stuff where I'm like, there were times where I was wild at him. Yeah. Um, you know, about the, the need for us to be ten times better, of rising above. And I had to make sense of the different times that we grew up in. Um, you know, he, he grew up in a time where it was perfectly legal to discriminate in the grounds of race, um, where he had to feed the kids and didn't have a choice. Um, just had to get up each day and whistle down the stairs and turn up to work and deal with the indignities and um, keep on going. Um, whereas I can't hold my mouth um, and get myself in trouble. And so I, for me, writing was very much... I felt Dad with me in writing it and me and him in conversation with each other. And um, I wanted to honour his um, legacy and the gifts that he gave us at the same time, talk about the difference in... Um, a generational difference um, in navigating this world. And I wanted then it to be a conversation to leave for my kids when it's their time. Um, and they'll probably growl and disagree with what I said at the, in this time. Um, but I just wanted to, I guess, have this tangible thing where we capture these conversations we've had at our kitchen tables, the ones we were raised in and the ones that we're raising our own kids in. I just want to add just something that Arnie Jackie said about how you sort of um, inspired her to revisit Sister Girl with a tweet. I have to say, I feel like the way that you've embraced memoir, but it's also about much more than that, about calling out structural racism... Um, I think it's kind of quite inspired me too in thinking about what I might write next. So it's great to see that in this, um, in our in our community, we've got um, our our aunties inspiring us and our our next generation as well. I just wanted to acknowledge what a big influence you're having. So, but of course, the book the book has has found a wider audience, and as Annie Jackie has mentioned, this is a time when I think there is a greater interest in hearing First Nations voices. Yours is a, is a strong, uncompromising one, but there's mm -hmm. certainly been a take-up in the book that goes beyond the First Nations community. So to that audience, what are you hoping might be the reflections or the response? Well, to that audience, I just want to say you don't have to email me apologising for having bought the book. <laughs> like, you can read it and you can buy it. You can buy lots of copies if you like. Um, yeah. But I get lots of emails or messages saying, I loved your book and I'm sorry I'm white and I know oh, it wasn't meant for yeah. me. Um, no, they don't apologise for being white. They apologise for buying the book. But um, so... Um, yeah, and, and of course, um, of course people can read it and take what they get from it. And I think that's the power of yarning is as, and, and in terms of um, our knowledge systems and how we teach is that we might get access to stories, um, but depending on your own frame of reference will determine what you're meant to receive and, and, and what you get access to. And so... Um, I know who I was writing for first and foremost, and there are people that may overhear that yarn, and they will get something, whatever they were meant to get from it at that particular time. And so, yeah, I welcome people to read it and, and take what they, how it speaks to them, but knowing that they don't understand the full story because it wasn't written for them exclusively. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so betrayed by so much um, black intellectual and creative work that I could feel it was being um, marketed to a white audience in an educative way. And I know we have to do that. I mean, we do it all the time, every day in this place, educating the settlers about who we are and, like, that we're still here, that kind of thing. Um, but as a black audience member, 
um, I used to get annoyed at, at engaging with work that was clearly um, attending to a white audience and forgetting that we just want stuff for ourselves. Um, and that's what, I mean, what Sister Girl did for me all these years ago, um, reading it, reading a scholar write this book. You know, it's an academic text and I get annoyed about the categorisation that these aren't academic texts. We wrote yeah. these as academics mm, and, and as blackfellas simultaneously, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> and what Sister Girl, what Annie Jackie did with Sister Girl was show that we can stand in our own style, our own story, and write from that place. And I was just yarning about, you know, reading Sister Girl and just you feel the spirit and the energy in it. Like, you can hear Annie Jackie's voice. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to um, be able to do that. And, you know, I, we know how to do academic writing and write for peer-reviewed journals. And we can perform in that, that stage and do all of those things. But mm. when it comes to our own books, well, we're going to tell it our way. Yep. And Sister Girl gave us permission to then just tell our own story. Mm. And it still can be intellectual as well as controversial. Mm. Yep. <laughs> um, I think some of the best books that have been written in that context by our mob get dismissed as not being academic and oh, they have enormous... And it's, it's, it sort of ref, reminds me of how our cultural stories are often trivialised as like children's stories or parables when there's actual deep knowledge in there and people... Mm -hmm. But they'll catch up. I have very, a lot of confidence people... Mm -hmm. are gonna, the Academy will catch up eventually. Yeah. Now, Jackie, I'm going to ask you about Sister Girl again, but before we do, you have a beautiful scarf there and I wonder if you can tell us the story of it. Yeah, may I stand up? Of course oh, you can. You can okay. <laughs> May I stand up? Whatever you like. <laughs> okay, the scarf. And I know that um, some people might like this story, all right? So I am Bidra. My totem is Emu. Can you see that? Oh, I'll better do it that, this way. Eh? So there's the Emu around the other side. Sorry, I'll be very quick, Jill. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> um, so there's that Emu, right? She is my totem from Carnarvon Gorge, central Queensland, my mother's country, Bidjara. Mm. So she is taking these tracks, and these are her tracks, leading on and on and on to what is perceived here. She goes back down the other side, right? Guess what this is? This is, the circle in the middle is the UN. And when I went to the UN, uh, Stradbroke Island artist Marcia Bori said, I'm going to make you a scarf, sis. Mm. It's a lovely blue uh, silk scarf that you can wear so that you come back to us safe. Mm. So those boomerangs, it's a symbol of coming back home. And um, I did. I wore this, actually, when I blasted the government about their inactivity mm. to our mob, and I did that every time, and I was never welcomed back. However... <laughs> Uh, that's it. That's my beautiful scarf I wear with pride mm. when I do um, great shows like this. The pants, uh, ladies and gentlemen <coughs> and others, is um, uh, this another uh, Aboriginal uh, woman, um, artist from Yarraba. Her name is Elvira Johnson, mm. Elvarina Johnson. She's just started off her... her um, her materials, her, her products, they're available in uh, Maya. They come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> and there's also some orange stuff you can get. So, uh, Elverine, I'm sure she won't mind me telling you, has had a very hard life. She's been a battler, 
uh, victim of domestic violence and stuff. And she's really risen to the occasion. And uh, please, go in and buy her product if you like this one. But you can't have the scarf. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, I have to say... The very last time I was at Carriage Works was for a First Nations fashion show, so I feel like we've had this wonderful encore. <laughs> now, to Sister Girl, just to show yes. how multifaceted you are, mm-hmm. that you can be a fashion plate and oh. a highly intellectual author at the same time, um, first came out, as you mentioned, in 1998, and you did say you've updated it a little bit, but... You know, you go back and read this, and, and I wonder what your reflections are on how far you think we've come and how far we've still got to go? Mm. Uh, well, as I say in the book, there are sometimes... Um, yeah, there, there is a space that I think we all dwell about, um, you know, the, the heartache that we, we feel in our hearts about nothing's changed. What has changed over the decades? I mean, the Royal Deaths and Custody Report... Hardly any of those recommendations. I haven't even looked at the social justice uh, reports either, either, and other very... Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. Other very significant reports that still uh, sit on the shelves, never receiving any attention to. And I often quite wonder, had they picked up some of those recommendations, would we be in the same place as we are now? Mm. So nothing much has changed uh, in, in that direction, and there are many things. Um, and we look at now the Close the Gap, um, three targets on target, you know. But uh, still, we're dying less, we are most unhealthiest people, and we are the poorest in our country. So that stuff has never changed, and it's not gotten better. What has gotten better, of course, is the education and the, uh, the story about my nephew's son, who's now a judge, and others. Significant education has, uh, has transpired. So that's uh, one of the really good things. And, of course, uh, the literature, the writing, and, and, and just the hundreds and hundreds of books now that we have across all genres of, uh, of writing and... Um, I think Tony Birch used to say, you know, you see one or two people at the writers' festivals and you'd be on this panel alone and you wouldn't have um, even many of your mob come along um, because they weren't reading books until ours came out, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, there has been change. I mean, I, I, I can't, uh, can't ignore that, but we're still very much, you know, people in chains in our country until we understand, until we get treaty... Um, I don't think we are going anywhere in relation to our our issues with um, the big Gs around the country. But what I must say is I'm very buoyed by um, Treaty in Queensland. Um, Last budget, we received uh, $300 million to progress the Treaty in Queensland, and uh, that's something that has changed. And I I think until people understand that, until we get through that, we're going to uh, not see other changes that will happen in our life. It's a wonderful reminder that there's been great government policy failure, but against that, where we've seen the greatest gains, it's actually been the 
you know, the, the work of our community control and our, our individual community members where we've seen that. And this brings me back to something I think is really important about your work, Chelsea, um, the work you've done in deepening an understanding of both structural and systemic racism in your work in the health sector. And then I think also really what's powerful about Another Day in the Colony is that you see through your own lived experience what the impact of those dynamics are. And I wonder what, from your perspective, you feel are things where um, we need to make some change. What are some of the, your agenda for change? Yeah, well, I've, I've kind of given up on the idea of change um, and the idea of progress. I think progress works as a kind of violent discourse in a settler colonial state. Um, well, until the settlers go home, of course, which is not happening. So, mm -hmm. um, and I find there's something freeing about giving up on the promise of change and progress. It doesn't mean we don't do stuff. I've just refocused my energies on the strategizing with other blackfellas because we're always fighting. We're always on front lines, whether it's at the principal's office for our kids or in the tea room at work or wherever. I'm interested in what we do to maintain the ongoing fight um, of what, what an unceded sovereignty looks like every day. Um, and so that we're always going to be in these fights. It's this, there's no changing that. Um, what I'm interested in is what's the kind of um, weapons and armour that we give to each other to sustain us in this fight so that we can live longer, so that our children can know black grandfathers. Um, you know, so that's where my, my energy now is invested in because I, early part of my career, I thought if we just gave them the evidence base... Um, that would change things. Like, they just need to read the manual. Um, I had that thought or just too. do the cultural yeah. awareness yeah. workshops, and in two days we would transform them um, so they could see our humanity. Turns out that doesn't happen. Um, they dehumanise us in those very processes. Um, and so it took me a while to realise that appealing to your oppressor was not all that um, emancipatory. Um, in fact, it was deeply depressing. Um, but what I, what I have energy for and excitement for is um, how we get build black collectives and black communities wherever we find them. And that's the thing, if we look at uh, history, um, you think about the power of black communities, mission reserve communities, mm. when no matter what they did to us, mm. black fellas together strategized all kinds of things where we were not meant to. Um, and now we see in this time where our communities are being um, dispersed even more, um, we have to be conscious about rebuilding community um, wherever, whether in the institutions we work and play in, geographically, politically, um, and that's the stuff that I get excited about, um, is how we build and think together, um, regardless of what they do. Yeah, I had the same thing where I thought I'm going to be a lawyer to change the world and I just need to give them the evidence. And turns out I don't care about the evidence. <laughs> and it is really, um, you know, in a way it's, it's a, 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 almost an emancipation to know that actually it's not about evidence. It's, we're fighting an ideology. And I was going to ask you about this a little later on, but it feels like the right time now that I think one of the most, you know, confronting things for people in the book is your, your, your kind of catchphrase of fuck hope. And this is what she said, I'm just quoting, sorry about this. <laughs> I can't um, let you say it too, that was cool. 
They recently interviewed Chelsea for a, a film and usually we try and tone the language down to make sure. We're just like, no, nah, we're just leaving everything she says. We'll just have to give it a different rating. Um, but, but I don't know what else, to, you know, I, I feel like that, that's, that's the right phrase. But I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit more because I did really find that while that can seem on the face of it, if people have a visceral reaction to the concept, they're missing what is actually a very, very deep and powerful and liberating idea. Yeah, look, I get that some people need hope um, and, and they live for it, particularly white women. Um, but as a black woman, I've been betrayed by hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yarning with mob who are, you know, dealing with racial violence all the time, I've seen the, the way in which they've been brutalised by that betrayal of hope. Um, and there's something really, you know, to, to let go of hope is not to be hopeless. Mm. Um, it's to stand in your own power. It's to remember who you are. And that hope is so passive. Like, since when did we wait for someone to give us something? When am I going to... Why would I hand my power to a future time, to an unknown pe a person, to grant me it? Um, and so, you know, to say fuck hope is not to say it's all hopeless. It's like... Remember who you are and where you come from. And it was in those moments where I was up against the ropes that I, that's what held me, not hope. It was like, I can remember who the fuck I am and I'm not putting up with that. Um, had, I, had I hung to hope, I wouldn't be doing half the things I'm doing. And so it's, it's, it's you know, I, I, I'm conscious that people might think it's irresponsible to say F hope. Um, but I think that... Um, Hope has been violent for us because it's a lie. Those happy endings are not afforded black fellas in a settler colonial state. Mm. Um, and, and there's something really powerful about truth. And, you know, to tell the truth is a gift of love that we give to each other and that we need to give to ourselves. Um, and so I think sometimes people forget the be sovereign part after fuck hope. Like... We actually have something else going on for us. Unceded sovereignty is, is, is real and you feel it. You feel it in the room. You feel it with, when you're yarning with mob. You feel it. That's not hope. That's something, that's a power, you know, far more profound than hope. Um, so, but yeah, you can have hope if you want it. I'm not saying we're abolishing hope. Um, I'm just saying for black fellas, it hasn't really worked so well for us as it has for white women. Thanks, Chelsea. Yeah. Um, speaking of ideas that confront Auntie Jackie, um, who I've known for a very long time and, and we have a relationship where I have the privilege of calling you Auntie, but one of the things in your book that I think is confronting for particularly a non-Indigenous audience is that you mm. have a whole thing about mm. Don't Call Me Auntie, mm. and I wonder if you could share that. It's a whole chapter. A whole, yeah, a whole chapter. <laughs> Look, I, I, I wrote this because uh, I had an idea in my head, well, 15 years ago, and, you know, when you're <coughs> my age away, well, I'm 66 this year, but 15 years ago I was on a panel with um, uh, Carolyn uh, Narweet Briggs and, uh, you know, we, we were doing this panel and we, she said, she turned to me and she said, I hate the way they call me auntie. And uh, I said, so do I, so do I. Yeah, I was 50, right? And somehow that's the golden year they start calling you auntie. But it wasn't only blackfellas, it was whitefellas too. And so I got my gully up a bit more. And uh, I said, to one day I'm going to write an essay about this. And I did. 
It does get confused now because some people used to call me auntie, now call me Jackie, and Jackie, and now they call me auntie, but they know to ask first, right? Mm. Now, I wrote a book called Auntie Rita, a biography of my mother, in 1994. She loved being called auntie, thought it was great, you know, terrific, and I just let it go. I just <laughs> said, yeah, all right, mum, that's, they all love you, you're an elder, you know, uh, that's fine. And she was embraced by that. But for me, it was kind of took on a bit of a different connotation because, you know, at Brisbane Writers Festival last week or the week before, it, every day it happened to me. <laughs> These were white women, my age or older. And I said, come on, I've got the script now. I line them up and I say, are you mob? No. You related? Um, no. I said, you, you're, um, you're, you're obviously, you Indigenous at all? No. I said, well, do, and, and you're about my age or older, aren't you? <laughs> and they said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, do not call me auntie mm -hmm. under any circumstance. So please, do not call me auntie. I will not give you permission if you fit into that category either, mm. you know. Um, and white men too, white <laughs> men do that. Um, when we have a joke between each other, we, you know, as, as black people and people about my my age and and uh, older, you know, we call each other auntie and uncle. But that's just a gammon thing, you know. We just want to build up their um, uh, build up their um, their presence. Uh, so yeah, and it's a kind of an entitlement too, um, Larissa. Mary Graham says in that piece, a very well-respected philosopher mm. of, uh, of Queensland, she says, it is not a rank, and it's not a rank. And certainly I've been in a room full of people, full of um, people where I get addressed as Auntie Jackie. All the men, black men, get called, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not... I'm using pseudonyms here, but um, Tom or Mick will get called, um, that they will never get called uncle, you know? So it is a gendered term. It's a gendered uh, perspective of a saying. So please do not call me auntie unless you have my permission. Mm. Um, some of the young ones, they come up and they will ask me, auntie, oh, well, they won't say auntie, but what do you prefer to be called now? What would you like to be called? And I love that. I really love that. But by the same token, I know with you, Larissa, too, you know, we um, worked together, oh, 20 years ago or something. I was 12. You were 12. <laughs> <laughs> she was. <laughs> and um, our relationship has changed significantly and I, I know that I'm a, uh, I'm a peer and all that and... Um, uh, you know you call me auntie with Chelsea. Chelsea is my niece, actually. She is married to uh, one of my nephews. Um, was married. Sorry, well, we my darling. We still legally are. Yeah, well, that's right. I was <laughs> interested in you. I went, to your, I went to your engagement party and yeah. you missed out on your wedding, but that's fine. When, yeah, all those years ago. So she is definitely my niece. So mm. it's not rocket science, you know? It's not rocket science. And um, I just think sometimes it's just a very patronising term to use if you're not using it properly.
Well, that's right. And I think people don't understand what the cultural significance, the obligations that go with being that in that uh, aunt relationship. But I think that the, uh, anyone's lining up to sign a book now after this will know exactly what to do. And everyone's still marvelling that you're that you gave your age away and you don't look at it just because oh, it's a show black you. don't crack. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. um, black don't crack. Chelsea, I want to come back to something you talked about because I think this is, in a way, one of the big gifts of your work and it is the embrace of a personal sovereignty. Um, you frame a lot of your um, philosophy, your, your view around that. You talked a little bit about it. But I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit more, about what that means in practice and particularly how you've brought that more broadly, not just to the way you live your life, but the work you do in the community. Yeah. Um, I'm just hard-headed and stubborn. Um, but it, there's lots of times where you're, you know, you, we're all in these situations where you're the one black fella in the room and, or, or, and you know the odds are stacked against you. You know that the, the system is structured in a certain way that you're not meant to win it. Um, and it, it's in those moments that I was, um, I'm not sure, reminded of, of, of that sovereignty meant something in a very real sense, in an embodied sense. Um, and, you know, there's times where I've entered into spaces and where I know that they've already had the meeting about how they're going to manage me, contain me. Um, and there's a joy in... <laughs> walking into those spaces, knowing that they've already strategized or mm. thought they could mm. strategize around you and didn't work out so well for them. Um, and it took me a while and a few encounters where I, 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 I discovered the joy of it instead of being overwhelmed by it. Or, mm. and, and the thing is, even when you go into those spaces, supposedly alone, we know we don't walk into those spaces alone. We know when we've got mob with us, you've, and you, feel, you feel it. This is not like a metaphor. You've, you've, we know our, our people look after us, speak to us. There's times, the timing of things that have happened, I just know that that was planned. I didn't know at the time, but when it played out, I went, oh, okay, I, I see what's going on here. I'm not alone. Um, and so I, I began to, to feel the joy in it because I knew I was going in knowing that I was protected. And, you know, Kathy Freeman speaks about when she, um, in her documentary, when she won the gold medal in here. And she said, you know, those girls, they were always going to have to come up against my ancestors. Yes. Mm. You know, and, yeah. like, that's what we mean. Our, our, our people are still here, not just us in body, but our, our people are always here with us. Mm. And and to just and you feel the goosebumps up the arm, you, you know you feel that presence, and um, so I've be, I found joy in I guess some of these um, these situations where we're meant to feel powerless. Um, because, and it's funny because these people forgot whose land they're on, mm. like, you know. Mm. Um, and so I found the joy in that of, of laughing at that arrangement because I know my power. Mm. Um, and and when we talk about an embodied sovereignty. Um, we're not talking about power as, as how the colonisers exercise power. Their power is shown by exercising it over somebody else. When we're talking about um, power, our own as blackfellas, it's standing in our power. It doesn't need to be exercised on someone else for it to exist. It is in us. And, and that's the difference. Um, you know, and you just see it all the time, even with, you know, um, grieving black families who are seeking justice. Mm -hmm. It's never to punish their perpetrator. It's to change the place for those that follow. Yeah. 
You know, like, we exercise that power very differently because we're relational people. We're not a colonising people. Um, and so I think, I think we have something interesting to show the world about what power means in a, in a fully human sense, in a loving, caring sense, not in a colonising, violent way. Thank you. Mm. Adi Jackie? Yeah, I just wanted to follow on from uh, Chelsea and say, you know, uh, you know, we say, you know, do we get nervous before we come out on stage and do these talks and stuff? And some of you may have been at the opening night. Um, I was, but my technique is I always have a silent, I'll either go to the loo or just in a quiet space. And I will call in my ancestors. Mm. I will call in my mother, particularly, my father, and then grandparents. They all come and they surround me. It's, a, it's like a big, um, you know, magic, comforting blanket. Mm. And they're with me. I feel the tap on the shoulder, you know. Mm. I, f I can smell them. And that's when I can go for it you know, because we know it's all in our hearts um, um, of our people who've left now. And I, I just wanted to pick up, too, on something, Chels, too, you know, back in, you know, and I, in your book there, and, and you say, you know, we're never afforded the status of our titles sometimes, you know, mm. and they will call you... Um, uh, Ms. Ms. Ms, yes, Miss or Miss, um, <laughs> and... Uh, Never professor. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, that's been the same thing. You know, it's good now. I think they got the doctor thing right, Dr Jackie Huggins. But, you know, uh, the honorary professor, which I'm an honorary professor at um, Swinburne, actually, and uh, they will never address us in that way, you know, because maybe the men ha in the room haven't got titles themselves. Mm, poor fellas. Yes. <laughs> but we have. So what that diminishes us, you know, um, in terms of our profession and really who we are. Well, that seems like a good opportunity to um, get you to do a bit of a reading from yes. this lovely book mm. about your father. Yes, thank you. Page 90, I think you wanted. Yes, that's right. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, um, my father, by the way, uh, was 38 when he died. Uh, I was two years of age. Mm. Sister three and a brother four months old. Mm. And their beautiful photos are in the middle <laughs> all of all of us. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> talking about mateship and uh, that sort of thing. This indicated how close he was with his mates. Jack uses very British language like a what, old boy, when addressing his pen pals. Wow, we'd never heard any blackfella talk like that before, especially to know our father did. Was he making a mockery of and having a shot at the British here? Or did he use the vernacular as an insider to fit in? to fit in with his mates, perhaps. Perhaps he did all of that. Somehow it was charming, it was a charming turn of phrase to think he would yarn like that to his mates. In both wars, for many non-Indigenous servicemen, 
This was the first time they truly encountered an Aboriginal person. Many people in big cities now and then cross paths with Aboriginal people without probably registering us. They often say they had never met an Aboriginal person when the truth is they are just not seeing us. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. I just wondered if you could share with us why you chose that to read. Yes. Uh, well, it's, it's all, all about the invisibility of our mob. You know, even still, it still happens. And, um, uh, you know, I, I remember Anita High saying, uh, the question you don't ever want to ask her again while she's on stage talking is, um, what part of you is Aboriginal? Mm. <laughs> You know, so uh, I can feel that, uh, I feel for that very much, especially amongst our, you know, our first fair-skinned um, blackfellas, um, cosmetically unapparent, mm -mm, which is a term Chelsea loves. Um, that was forwarded to me by my late cousin, Lillian Holt, mm. who uh, had the way with words. Mm. Sister Marlene, you would agree with that? <laughs> yes. So our sister said that, you know, cosmetically apparent, she meant. And what a phrase it is. Mm -hmm. with, with me, there's no question. There's no question, except people sometimes think I'm Maori or Pacific Islander. And, uh, yeah, so that's why I chose that. Great. Mm. Well, Chelsea, can you share a reading with us? Sure. Be great, thank you. I'll have a non-swearing section. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um... Black self-care is Alison Whitaker turning up to coroner's courts. It's Amy Maguire insisting on Kevin Henry's innocence. It's Ruby Wharton with a megaphone. It's Barker telling her titters not to hang their head in a noose. It's Murrah Johnson fighting the biggest coal mine in the world. It's Lorna Munro fighting gentrification. It's Fiona Foley mem memorialising massacre sites. It's Gwenda Stanley's voice echoing down city streets. It's Tarnine Onus Williams burning it down. It's wild black women everywhere, all the time. Those black women who refuse to accept that comfort that silence promises in the course of self-care and self-preservation. It is a black self-care that finds itself in solidarity with blackness above all else, which includes, while not centering, your damn self. Wemba Wemba and Kuruchimara woman Paola Bala declares, to be sovereign is in fact to act with love and resistance simultaneously, because there isn't a choice between care of the self and fighting on front lines for black women in this place. To do so demands a disconnect, another form of dispossession from the black bodies we birthed or were birthed from. To enact an existence that is always love and resistance demands of us a deliberate and conscious decision to find joy, not away from the fight, but in the fucking fight. I mean, if I'm always gonna be in it, I may as well have fun doing it. That is what it means to care for oneself too. Yeah, lovely. Um, Sorry, there was a swear. I forgot. Yeah, I was going to say, it was a bit swearing. I'm going to ask you why you chose that. I'm going to ask you why you chose to read that. But just uh, as I do, I want to just let the audience know that we will have time for a couple of questions. And the shorter you keep your questions, the more time we'll have. So if you are interested in asking a question, perhaps you can come to the microphone and then we can 
um, see what the audience might have to uh, add to the conversation. Uh, but Chelsea, why did you choose that to read um, to us? That was for the black women in the room. Um, just sitting, watching Janetta as listening to Artie talk about ancestors, you know. Um, oh, we just need yes. to remind ourselves yes. of this. And so I just wanted you to hear it again, because maybe today you need to hear it. Right. Well, as no one's come to the microphone yet, yes, I have definitely got more questions for you. Oh, yeah. I wanted to start with you, mm -hmm. Ani Jackie. Um, I mentioned uh, early on that you were um, a, a trailblazer in a lot of ways, uh, not just because of your advocacy around so many issues and the public contribution that you made, but you, you are an historian and you um, started working in the academy and bringing a First Nations perspective to... Um, what would have been seen as a very Western discipline and a Western approach to that discipline. And I was wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about what it was uh, in your world that um, equipped you to be that trailblazer and how you have kept that sense of being sovereign and who you are as mm -hmm. you were... I mean, I think what Chelsea's writing about... Uh, speaks to the fact that that, that tr early trailblazing was very much about appeasement and going in quietly um, and having to navigate that world in a very different way than we're able to navigate it now that there are more of us there. You went through it at a very different time. Mm. And I was wondering if, what, if you could share with us what equipped you to do that. Yes, well, what equipped me was a beautiful and wonderful mother. Mm. Without question, I, um, she's been gone now. Uh, 26 years, and uh, I think about her every single day. I speak with her. She gives me guidance. She tells me what to do. And uh, without her, I would not be the woman that I am. And uh, as you know, her father died She was when we were young. So our mum became everything to us our uh, mother, father, grandparents. Uh, so, uh, and, and then she, she was very um, instrumental in setting up uh, an organisation called OPAL, yeah. which is One People of Australia League with Darcy Cummins and, uh, and, and other, Neville Bonner was the, um, uh, was the chair of uh, OPAL in those days, 1960s, right? We hadn't even got our citizenship rights. Um, so mum, mum was that trailblazer for me and uh, I guess I followed her around as a young child to all kinds of talks that she gave and uh, it really sunk into me that, um, you know, Jackie, you want to you wanna do something like this as well when you, uh, when you grow up. Uh, but the difference is, of course, she didn't have white man's education but she had community and she had loving and she had uh, the strength of... Uh, of her community to follow her through. Um, but that was all right. She was a ferocious reader, would read a book a day if you let her, which was great. Unlike me, I read two books and takes me six months or something. I'm very slow. But, uh, yeah, I, I, can, can, I would just attribute this to my beautiful mother, uh, Rita Huggins, um, who passed, uh, passed uh, yeah, 26 years ago. Larissa, I've been asked this question before and um, I have no better answer. Mm, that's a perfect answer, isn't it? Mm. Um, Chelsea, in, and in a similar way, obviously, um, you've talked um, a bit today about the, the, the strength of sovereignty that you feel and that that's a, something that's really inherent in you. 
And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that strength formed, where your worldview, who were the influences in that for you? Um, I mean, yeah, certainly at the kitchen table. Yeah. Um, you know, the frame of reference for knowing ourselves was so different to how the academy has known us, mm. Um, mm. how the social world constructs us. And so I was blessed that our understanding of blackness in our home was never one of deficiency. We didn't have to work on a strength-based approach to being black. We just knew it, <laughs> you know? Um, like, just, just was. Um, and so I, I think um, the home that I grew up in and, um, and, and that we had a, a critical race consciousness, even if Dad was the idea of, you know, transcending it, but there was a consciousness about what we'd have to encounter, not, not pretending it, was, it didn't exist. Um, so I feel very grateful for that. But um, I mean, to sit here with both of you and in terms of the people who have created these spaces for us to be, um, mm. to play and to be more free because we've seen what you've done. I mean, I just think about you modelled what an academic could be. Like mm. you can do documentaries and write fiction and, yes, you know, be a lawyer <laughs> and like work in the academy and reform higher ed. Um, like you could do everything. Yes. Um, and because oftentimes we're disciplined by disciplines to be a certain kind of academic and you opened up the possibilities for what we could do and you could just, you could, you could pick what you wanted to do. You could create that. Um, with Annie Jackie, I mean, to move in, um, when I came to UQ after Annie Jackie was there and to, to be into that Gordon Greenwood building and knowing the, the tradition that came before, um, to be in the UQP stable with the black woman writers, like to walk into that space and knowing that these fights have been had so that we can then take up some space. Um, and certainly Annie Lilla Watson, um, who was on Senate when I came through a graduation ceremony, and she found me in the crowd and just said to me, I'm proud of you. Yeah. And I cried and she gave me a hanky. Um, <laughs> and all these years since, like to be able to sit at her kitchen table. Um, and she was so instrumental in the book when she... Um, generously read the whole thing for me. Um, and I've told this story because when I was over there and the kids were playing and stuff and um, she actually, while I was there, started to read it. And I was really frightened. <laughs> um, I didn't want to see her face as she was reading it. And um, she came out and she said, Chelsea, has this been published yet? And I said, no, aunt. And she goes, good. Because so, she had a lot of things to say about it. Um, <laughs> and... Um, but it was that gift that she gave me and I, you know, write, write about it in the foreword about how it changed and because she, you know, speaks so powerfully about um, Indigenous terms of reference. Mm -hmm. um, and she held me during the um, race discrimination case with UQ in... I walked in there saying, I'm going to win this case. And she's like, what do you mean by winning? Like, wh what do you mean by that? On whose terms? Mm -hmm. So you're fighting on their terms. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, so I've just been blessed with just these staunch blackfellas who embody it, um, who, who model it so that we can stand in our own strength. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just been, yeah, such a gift. And this is a gift to be able to sit here and have this kind of conversation. Yeah. I, love, I love that about, um, I mean, we, we've all been or are academics in different ways. I think it's a profession that was crafted by white men for white men, which is mm. why we've had to find our own ways yes, to, yes. to be there. But I think the thing I love about the... Um, black fellas working in the space is that they always understand that there's still greater wisdom in our elders mm -hmm. than there is in the academy, Absolutely. and that I think is and it's just a powerful. foundry, it's just a yeah. factory. That's right, that's right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's I mean it's a violent factory. Yeah, um, but it's mm. no different to the, the foundry Dad worked in. 
Um, and he worked his way off the foundry floor and, you know, once you know how to work that foundry, you can fuck it up. Just <laughs> I, we're almost sorry. A... <laughs> <laughs> I think Jackie was swearing a lot yesterday. I'm just going to say. Well, on that note, unfortunately, I have to finish because okay. of yeah. the time, and they'll move sure. us on. So I'm very, very sorry for people who obviously should have had a voice, and we're constrained by that. But can I please um, ask you to join me in thanking Chelsea and Arnie Jackie for the privilege of listening to and them thank today? You. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.